As you're seated, let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning. If you're a guest with us, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. We started in January and uh, we just worked through. It's what we do each Sunday, just work through another passage in the Bible, uh, just sequentially going through a book of the Bible. That way you know that the sermon's coming from the Bible and it's not just the opinion of some preacher up here. We want to find out what does the Bible say. Now we have found ourselves in Hebrews chapter 10 and it's a tough passage. Hebrews 10, we'll start in verse 26 and uh, read down to verse 39. There you find a warning. Hebrews chapter 10. If you found that, why don't you stand and we'll read together God's word. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, we'll start in verse 26. Read through to verse 39. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 26. <clears throat> For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when you were enlightened and you endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And he quotes Habakkuk. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, that you would take this warning you would break through hard hearts to be receptive to what they already know. God, I pray you would save people. I pray you would save people that think they're saved. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters in Christ here, men and women that love you, love this church, love Christ, just need to be encouraged. Holy Spirit of God, would you bring an encouraging word from your word to their hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
The God of the Bible, the God that we worship, the God that we've been singing to, we opened up praying to, the God that gave us this Bible, the God of the Bible is a God of love and a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness, a God of grace, a God of compassion. Our God from the, from the Bible, we find out he is a God of healing, a, a God of patience. My goodness, look at us, a God of patience. That's good news. I mean, our word that drives Christianity, gospel, even the word gospel literally means good news. Good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross in the place of sinners. God raised him from the dead, and any sinner that will repent and believe will be saved. Good news, Jesus saves sinners. That's good news. <clears throat> Even still, we can't ignore that this God hates sin. And that hatred of sin seems even more intensified when it's applied to those who are inside the church, among church people. Notice I didn't use the terminology saved people, church people. And the thing that I've not been able to get around this week as I've wrestled with this passage, turned it over and upside down and thought about it, the thing that I have not been able to get around is that this preacher, here's a pastor writing to his people, the book of Hebrews is a letter from a pastor to his church, a congregation undergoing some sort of struggle, persecution. We don't know what it is. Maybe they were in Rome being persecuted by Nero. We just don't know. There's something going on there. And here's this preacher. He's talking about people in the church. People that are on the roll at Hickory Grove. You know, to be a member of Hickory Grove Baptist Church, you actually have to be baptized either here or some other like-minded church. You were baptized by immersion, and you're only baptized after you've given your life to Christ. You've given some sort of verbal evidence that you have said Jesus is Lord, and you believe the gospel, then you're baptized. And that baptism is the signal that you are in Christ. At baptisms today, it's a signal. Something has happened. There's been some sort of profession of faith in Jesus, and yet there are those who are on the roll at Hickory Grove having made a profession of faith in Jesus and then followed through in baptism saying Jesus is Lord, but are in significant danger of nonchalantly sliding into judgment. Now this passage and this sermon are not for the faint of heart. You might even want to, where you're sitting right now, just ask, you may even just want to say, God, God, give me, give me ears to hear. Just silently to the Lord. God, give me ears to hear. God, give me will to respond. 
I serve as one of the pastors here, and you have many pastors at Hickory Grove, and every one of them desires to see you flourish as a child of God. I want your faith to be rooted in and confidently placed in the crucified, resurrected Jesus. I want you to know the joy of having your sins forgiven by grace. I want you to, to have your life so that you can live it joyfully, sustained by the mercy of God and the goodness of God given to us at the cross of Jesus. Today, today we speak of life and death. Because God is good. God is good. But judgment is real. I want you to grab them both. God is good. Judgment is real. When you read the passage, you seem to see two different, broadly, just broadly, two different categories of people that the preacher is addressing in the text. And what I want to do today is just show those categories to you, and then you decide which one of the categories you actually are in. We all, in this room today, we all land in one category or another. Let's start with the scariest. Some people, some people, here's the first point, some people need a warning. That's what he says. Start in verse 26. I think the best thing to do is go right to the passage. You join me there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. I think the best thing to do is to allow you to see it for yourself. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to see the warning, verse 26 and 27, and then we'll come back, see the theology behind it, verse 28 and 29, and then see the outcome of that warning if it's ignored, verse 30 and 31. Let's go right to the warning in verse 26. You see it there. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Right there in the middle of the verse. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. Might even circle, definite article, the truth. That is the body of what it means to be a Christian. We would even truncate the truth down to an explanation of the gospel, that God is a holy creator, created all of us in his image. That image in us is disfigured because of our sin. We are separated from God and deserve to go to hell. But God is also love. And to the degree he loved us, he gave us Jesus who lived perfectly, died on the cross in the place of sinners as a substitute, taking the wrath of God. God raised him from the dead in a shout of victory on a Sunday. It's why we worship on a Sunday. He ascended into heaven. And the promise is anybody that repents and believes that will be saved. Now here's what he's saying in verse 26. After you have received that, you understand the gospel? Remember, this is for church people. You've said you acquiesce and you submit to that. If you go on sinning, nope, back up. If you deliberately go on sinning. Let's put them together. Deliberate, continual. Let's talk about deliberate sin. You'll see the word in verse 26, deliberate sin. That means to hear the gospel, to understand the truth. To have come to church your whole life or part of your life or been to vacation Bible school or you've gone to Sunday school, you went to Camp Paradise, 
You've taken part in church life. You've benefited from the church. There are problems in the church, plenty of hypocrites in the church, but there are some good things about the church too, and you've benefited for, from those things. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home. You have a mom or dad or maybe both that loved Jesus and took you to church and treated you with affection and respect and all of those things. And then you heard the gospel and it made sense. You fully understand how to become a Christian, but then knowingly reject the lordship of Jesus in your life. To, to have said, Jesus is Lord, and claim to have been born again, maybe even been baptized in your name on the roll, and yet there is no fruit, or you've started to be able to rationalize your own behavior, possibly your own sin, ignoring your own shortcomings, that's the word deliberate. To know the truth. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth. Back up further in verse 21, the very beginning of the verse. I need to make the distinction here and let's, let's speak very specifically to continual. Verse 26. If you go on sinning, if you continually if you make a lifestyle, I don't mean that Christians are perfect. We certainly are not. We commit sins. Most of us here have sinned today already. The difference is our sins have been paid for on the cross by Jesus. We're not living in a lifestyle. We hate that sin. Whatever the sin is, you hate it. What he's saying here is if you go on sinning deliberately after you have knowledge of the truth, if, if you live your life and a lifestyle of someone that is not a Christian. You know who this is directed at? He's writing this to people in a congregation. This is directed to the person whose name is on the roll of a church and yet has no real involvement in the body, doesn't worship God, doesn't love the things of God, and, and really just doesn't care. I got hit with that this week person came by and said, introduced himself to me and said, hey, I'm a member of your church. I just don't go there or anywhere. It was real flippant when I heard it. And, and I thought, how, how sad is that? To, to at some point, something happened where you said, I want Jesus as Lord, and followed through. It's a significant thing to be baptized with baptism. And yet something didn't connect. This is directed to the person whose name is on the roll of a church, has no real involvement, does not come to worship, doesn't participate in the things of God, doesn't really care, has heard the gospel, even claimed to know the gospel, even said, I accept Jesus, and yet... Go on living continually, deliberately. You see, it, you see it for yourself. Go on living as someone that is not a Christian. You get to the end of verse 26. Go there with me. At the end of verse 26, the preacher says, If that describes you, you stand outside the line of grace. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The warning, the theology, verse 28 and 29, the outcome. 
something terrible. Something. You see it? He tells us that in verse 27, there is a fearful expectation of judgment and fury, a fire that consumes the adversaries. You see that word adversaries? It's the word enemy. So, so all of those who are not truly in Christ, and now this is to the church, those that are in the church, they have said at some point they were a part of the church, all of those who claim to be church members but are not actually in Christ will be treated as enemies by an otherwise loving and gracious and good God. That's the warning. That's the warning. Now let's go back and look at the theology in verse 28 and 29. Look at the theology with me. Here's the theology. So it's one thing to tell people they're going to hell. If you're going to do that, you need to be able to back it up. What, what is the theology behind it? It is, a, it is a fearful thing to say to someone, you are going to hell. If that's the case, we need to back it up. How does he back it up? He does so in verse 28 and 29. He takes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He does an if then. Let me show you what it means. See it in verse 28 and 29. <clears throat> Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, that's the Old Testament, so breaking the commandments, death penalty, the wages of sin is death. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's describing as the lesser the death penalty in verse 28. If you think that's bad, verse 29, how much worse is the punishment? Now, now do the logic. I mean, the death penalty is bad. He's saying there's something worse. That if you reject this, this blood of the new covenant, he'll go on and talk about it. You, you stand in the danger of going to hell. And then in verse 29, he gives us three darkly picturesque phrases to describe what happens when you say you are saved but are not. You, you see it, verse 29, look at it with me. The first phrase, you trample underfoot the Son of God. Trample underfoot the Son of God. This is an attack. This is an attack on the character of Christ. Trample, that's a terrible word. Jesus uses it in Matthew 5 when he says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, it's no longer good for anything. He says to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Or Matthew 7 when he says, don't throw your pearls before swine because they'll turn and trample them. Here's the warning. Get the warning in this context. You hear, the, you hear the truth of the gospel, and you actually know that to be true, and yet you continue to live as if it's not true. He's saying, if you do that, this is what it's like. You have walked up to Jesus as he has laid down his life for you, and you step on his neck. Keep walking. Trampled underfoot the sun. If that's, not, if that's not vivid enough, he gives us another one. He says, you, it's right there, verse 29, another phrase. You've profaned the blood of the covenant. Profane. Let's just look at some of the words. Profane. It actually, that sounds stronger than what the word really is in Greek. It, it's, just, it's this idea of 
you've made it common. You've made it not holy. You've, you've treated it like it's no big deal. It's blood of the covenant. What does that mean? That is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross in the new covenant that purchases you, that, that gives salvation. And if you say that Christ is Lord and yet your life gives no evidence of it, you not only trample on the Son of God, you have made it as if His death on the cross doesn't mean a thing. The blood that Jesus shed to turn away the wrath of God and to take away sin is, is not enough for you to live your life for Christ. You hear that and you just shrug your shoulders. It's not enough for you to submit to the to make you submit to the goodness of God or the lordship of Jesus. So you've trampled underfoot the Son of God, you, you've profaned the, profaned the blood of the covenant. There's a third phrase, verse 29, outrage the spirit of grace. What a phrase. Take the outrage word off for a moment and just gaze at that phrase, the spirit of grace. Only time in the New Testament, the whole Bible, you'll see the Holy Spirit of God called the spirit of grace. We understand the term grace. You don't have to go to church to really know that. Grace. And, and grace is good. We understand grace. We like grace. I enjoy grace. I'm thankful for grace. <clears throat> Riding my car in a 35-mile-an-hour zone, and I happen to be doing 46 miles an hour. I didn't see him there, and behind me he comes with his lights on. I pull to the side, he gets out of his car in a uniform with a badge. Walks up to the car, license and registration, Mr. Presley, did you know you were speeding? Yes, Mr. Officer, I knew that. He looks at it, writes me a warning. I drive off. It's grace. I deserved worse. We, we understand grace, we like grace. We want grace. And here we're told that, that the Holy Spirit of God is the spirit of grace. Now bring the word outrage. Bring it back. You've outraged the spirit of grace. You, it's an outrage. It's, it is the worst personal insult. God comes to you in love and grace and mercy. God comes to you. You sense that. You've heard the gospel. But that love of God is not welcomed or wanted. I don't, I don't know. It's not for me to say. I am not the judge. There is such a thing as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't know where the line is. But it's there. To, to insult the Spirit of grace. God comes to us in love and mercy and grace. and The third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son... And God, the person, the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates. Get, that is to say, be born again. Gives us life. The Holy Spirit enlightens our minds. It seals our hearts. The Holy Spirit takes you and grafts you into a body of believers. The Holy Spirit strengthens us with grace. Heals. The Spirit of God heals us with affection. The very air you're breathing. And yet, to not take the free gift of God, to not receive the free gift of the Lordship of Jesus is to actually insult the spirit of the living God. Come down, the, come down verse 30. 
And all that is left is judgment and vengeance. Two chapters over, the preacher will tell us that, that our God is a consuming fire. Here in verse 31, verse 31, he just offers the warning. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's another thing altogether to run into the arms of a loving God by faith in Jesus. If you won't do that, then you've, you fall into the hands of the living God. Some people, some people in this room, some people maybe watching online or a year from now watching, some people need to be warned. Come, come to God by faith in Christ. Quit the charade. See Jesus on the cross dying in your place, receiving the punishment you deserve and giving you his righteousness. Come to God and he will save you in Jesus. It's a warning. Some people need to hear a warning. Maybe some of you here, for the first time you've heard this, and for the first time you think, you know what, I, I'm not really a believer that's the case, in a little while we'll talk about how you can give your life to Jesus. Some people need to hear a warning. But the truth is, most of us sitting in this room are believers. So you're in the second category, and let's go to that. Some people, here's the second point, some people, some people need encouragement. From verse 32 all the way down to the very end of the passage, it is the pastor encouraging his people. Maybe that's you. <clears throat> Probably most of us in this room could stand to have a little bit of encouragement. In fact, it's safe to say that everybody you come into contact with today and this week at your office or wherever you work could benefit from you encouraging them. Some people need some encouragement. That's just what the preacher does starting in verse 32 as he turns to his beleaguered congregation, and he takes them on a journey, verse 32, and he starts, here's what he's doing. He's going to help them interpret all the bad things that have been happening to them. To interpret all the gut-wrenching things that they've been through. Now, this congregation has been through terrible persecution. So bad, some people are falling off. Now, thank the Lord, we have not walked through that, but what we can do is prepare our hearts for it and also take the principles from this passage. It's a good time to ask maybe. Maybe you want to ask the question, what does God, what is God teaching me in pain and suffering? What, what does God teach me in pain and suffering? Or you might just want to ask the question, why, why am I going through this and what is this struggle doing for my Christianity? Why, am I, why is this such a hard time, and what is it doing for my Christianity? So for those of us that are suffering some sort of, maybe it is persecution, maybe it's just a really hard time. What does pain do? Uh, a couple of these I got somewhere, a couple of somewhere else, I can't remember where, but I've lined them out for you. I think there are four or five. Here's the first one. What does pain do? Number one, pain proves your faith. 
You walk through it. Read it, verse 32, read it. But recall the former days. Remember, he's, he, he now is telling his congregation, look behind you, see what God's brought you through. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that word enlightened, the moment you understood the gospel, your eyes were opened, your heart started beating, you believed. After you were enlightened, you became a child of God. You put your faith in the crucified, resurrected Jesus. And when that happened, look what he says. This is why I hate. This is why I'm so against the prosperity gospel. I hate the prosperity gospel because it says, here's what God, God's going to get you through a breakthrough and your blessings on the way. It might not be. You get saved, you might walk through the worst hell you've ever been through. Verse 32, after you were enlightened, you went through a hard struggle and suffering, hurt. You were enlightened, right? you're saved, but God took you through. You endured. Your salvation was tested and proven to be true. Satan attacked. People sinned against you. Maybe you were ridiculed, possibly mocked. Maybe you were fired. You certainly were frustrated, hurt, been mistreated, walked through abuse. God forbid, God forbid you, you lost the person you love the most. And yet, God walked you through it. Saved you by grace, sustained you by love, and your life is marked by the phrase, if it weren't for God, if God didn't carry me through, I would be ruined. It's proof. It's proof. It's proof that your faith is real and growing. What else does pain do? I'll give you a second one. Come down the page, just a verse. Verse 33. You know what pain does for a church? <clears throat> it deepens the fellowship. Brings us together. You see it in verse 33. Sometimes, notice how it says, Sometimes you are publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So sometimes the bad things happen to you. You walk through it. Verse 33. But sometimes you are partners. Koinonia is the fellowship. You are partners with people that were hurting. Sometimes it was you. Remember, he's looking back. He's saying, this is the test of your faith. Sometimes you're the one that was hurting. Sometimes you saw somebody else hurting, and then you went and helped them. When you're a Christian, you get in trouble. When you're a Christian, in trouble. A Christian in trouble is never in trouble alone. A Christian in trouble is always in trouble with brothers and sisters standing shoulder. I mean, it should be standing shoulder to shoulder, strengthening. We... I think we're probably headed into some pretty difficult times for the Christian church, for the professing church, for the church that believes the Bible. I think we're probably in the next 10 to 15 years, maybe sooner, going really hard time. Those pressures will be terribly unpleasant, but they will bring the church together. Shoulder to shoulder. Strengthening our connection in Christ. He said, you, you took the attitude, verse 33, you took on the attitude that if one member suffers, we all suffer. See what pain does, pain and hurt and sickness and tragedy, all of these things, it displays something. All of that gives us an opportunity 
to take care of one another. I mean, sometimes you do it in big ways. I mean, every week, guys from Hearts and Hammers are going into people's homes and taking care. So sometimes it's like that. Oftentimes, it's just a brother or sister hearing a need, delivering a meal, standing at a funeral, offering a prayer, showing up. Sometimes it's just giving some money where you see somebody falling short. What hard times do in a Christian fellowship bring deepen the connection, deepen the fellowship. You know what else hard times does? Or do? You know what they do? I'll give you a, a third one. Pain increases compassion. It increases. It makes us so that we aren't so prideful. God gives us, there's a reason we walk through some of that. God gives us wounds so that we won't be so prideful. Stand in judgment of other people. I would never let that happen to me. And God gives you a wound. So that, so that we stand and say, if it were not for the grace of God, that's just where I'd be. God gives us pain, gives us wounds. I'll give you a fourth one down in verse 34. You saw part of it in verse 34. When you're, when you're increasing compassion, I'll give you the second part in verse 34. God gives us difficulty to strengthen our contentment and our priorities. To, to place our contentment in Christ. To know that we are content in Christ. It's a beautiful thing in verse 34. Let me read it to you. You had compassion on those in prison. There's the compassion. And you joyfully accepted... Can you imagine this? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an, an abiding one, a lasting one. Sometimes we have terrible things happen to remind us what actually matters. Sometimes the gas prices go up so high and there's an economic collapse. Sometimes those things happen. Sometimes your retirement takes such a nosedive. Don't look at it. It's only make you depressed. So that you might realize that your security is gone, your prestige, maybe you had a position. Th those things are taken away so that we might be reminded that our contentment is in Christ. And when you are content in Christ, a bad day becomes a useful day. Content in Christ. We learn to, what does God teach us? Romans 5 tells us that we learn to rejoice in our sufferings. We know that suffering, see, it does something. It produces endurance, and endurance produces character Character produces hope, and, and hope doesn't disappoint. It doesn't make us shameful. It doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who have been given to us. We find out what matters. One more thing. One more thing hurting does. When you walk through what some of you have been through, Verse 39, 
tells us. Come on down, skip over Habakkuk, end it up. Nice positive note, verse 39. It renews our confidence. Don't you love verse 39? It's a reminder. This is the preacher telling his people, don't forget who you are. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is a good reminder. Who you are, who you belong to, and why you actually are going to be okay. That by God's grace, He saved you. By that grace, He will sustain you. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. That, that this light momentary affliction, that God is for you and not against you, and this light momentary affliction, it's doing something. It's preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all compare. And God has said, when you walk through the waters, I'll be with you. You go through the rivers, they shall not overcome you. You walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame will not consume you. Therefore, you should be strong and courageous. God says, I will be with you. I will never leave you and never forsake you, even to the ends of the earth. For some of you sitting in here this morning, God knew you needed some encouragement. Receive the encouragement from His Word and feel loved by God. For others of you, God has given you an affectionate warning. Do not resist the Spirit of God. This morning I'm asking you to respond in repentance and faith and for the first time put your Put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Call on Jesus as Lord. Ask God to save you, and he will. Will you join me as we pray together? With your heads bowed this morning, as we go to the Lord in just a moment of prayer, we're going to sing one last song. And as we do, I have an invitation for you. You heard the warning this morning. You know you are outside of God's grace, but you want to be saved. When we sing, I'll invite you to come forward. Our pastors are here to pray with you and talk further about what it means to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you want to come and this morning and just pray for someone. I preached and all you could do is think about that person. You want to pray for them. Possibly this morning you came in needing some encouragement and you heard it from God's word and you want to sing. When we sing this morning, you should sing with such enthusiasm and joy because God loves you and has sustained you and will keep sustaining you. God has spoken to your heart this morning. You need Christ. When we sing, you come forward. Father, thank you for your word that is good, for your grace that saves. And we pray today that you will call people to yourself, that you will save those that think they're already saved you'll encourage those that love you as Lord. Help us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?